This is Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show, recorded in the heart of the Midwest, Columbia, Missouri, and broadcast each Thursday evening from 7 till 8 on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. My name is Diana Moxon. One of the things I love about putting Speaking of the Arts together each week is that I often get to chat with people who have incredible artistic talents or a job that I am fascinated by or are arts world people that I might never otherwise have got to meet. And for this first show of 2023, my two guests definitely check all of those boxes. One is no stranger to speaking of the arts, though it is three years since we last got to have an in-depth natter. The other is brand new to the show, but someone whose work not only have I long admired, but he is highly regarded by many in the Missouri theatre world. I cannot wait for you to hear tonight's show, so get comfy. And if, like me, you are five days into No Booze January, then I recommend a nice cup of peppermint tea as we dive into the worlds of Paula Van Landingham and Ryan Zerngable. I suspect that lots of people find it really hard not to mimic an accent when they hear it. And I say that having spent 17 years meeting Americans who respond to my English accent by saying things like, hello there, are you having a lovely day? At which I just inwardly roll my eyes. But I am as guilty as anyone else when I hear certain accents. I just have to see what they taste like. I studied linguistics at university and was fascinated by phonetics, but even my love of the sounds of language, even then I found it really, really hard to transcribe all those dialect differences. Disappointingly, I was not a natural, but my guest today was and is a natural of such high calibre that she has made a career out of helping actors around the world hone accents and dialects for their roles in film, theatre, television, and now also the worlds of gaming and digital media. She speaks six languages plus English and is proficient in speaking and teaching more than 50 world accents, including multiple American regional accents, at least six English accents plus Scottish and Irish, along with multiple Spanish accents, Japanese, Chinese, West African, East African, Russian. Ah, The list goes on and on. Paula Van Landingham has been on Speaking of the Arts several times and whereas I rarely get feedback from people who listen to the show, whenever Paula is on, lots of people tell me how much they enjoyed listening to her. So it is with great delight that Paula is back once again to take us on a journey into the fascinating world of accents and to tell us all about a huge film project she's been working on, which is tongue-tying in its complexity. Paula Kavanagh, Carter Van Landingham, you are the perfect start to the new year. Welcome back. Hello. My ego is never higher than when I speak with you. (laughs) (laughs) I'm such a huge fan. (laughs) Thank you so much. So I'm guessing that when an accent collector like you goes through two years of a pandemic, she puts that time to good use by acquiring new accents. So since we last chatted at length in January 2020, what have you added to your already lengthy list? 
What a wonderful question. Yes, you're exactly <laughs> right. You really know how this works. Well, obviously, last year when the Russian invasion of Ukraine happened, immediately I wanted to dive in. I, I knew some Russian already. I speak some Bosnian already. And I said, well, obviously, Ukrainian is a different language of the family. I would like to study that and really get up to speed because we're going to have lots of refugees and or people who are trying to help Ukraine. So I dove in and began to teach myself uh, vocabulary and grammar and to be able to read the alphabet, which is slightly different than Russian. Um, so a few changes. And I learned as a result of a dialect difference that exists in Ukraine between East and West. And you hear it in those who are speaking English when they're on television. So you can hear how, let's say, Volodymyr Zelensky's accent is versus some of his generals and others who are on the Eastern Front, those who are so heavily influenced by Russian language versus some of the features of Lviv and Kiev in the West that sort of mimic a little bit more like Austrian-like accents that we would hear. And it was so interesting because I was working with an actress and model from that Western area who was in New York, and she was working on her English. And I discovered there's a special sound in that Western accent, and I confirmed it with her. So it's very similar to there's a there's a Spanish B V combination that in Mexico they'll say like instead of um, sometimes, which is a veces v e c e s. In Mexico, they put the lips together and vibrate without touching the lips. A veces, a veces. So I discovered that the Western dialect of Ukrainian has this sound. And so when you hear the city of Kiev, it's K-I-E and this special sound, like the lips together, but not a true V. And I repeated it back to her and she said, oh my God, I've never heard an American get the sound right. <laughs> but it was a linguist that had to understand, oh, we have some other choices available here. And then I started teaching actors, listen, when you're going to start playing in the roles that are the invasion of Russia, the bombing of Kiev, and you're going to be the American playing the English version of this movie, and you have to play the accent correctly. You can't be running in there with a traditional Russian accent. That's the enemy. You have to sound like the resistance in the West. And so I've been teaching actors this new accent that maybe didn't matter two years ago, but is now prominent. So that's a new one that I started to do. I figured that you might be diving into Ukrainian. I guess I'd seen something on one of your TikTok videos, but I thought, yep. I bet Ukrainian and Russian and being able to distinguish between the two is going to come up, maybe not right now, but certainly in the next couple of years as the dramas begin to roll out of this time. So give us a sentence that would indicate the difference in dialect tone between Eastern Ukraine and Western Ukraine. Oh, yes. I have a perfect example because during the speech to Congress, President Zelensky did it. So and knowing what the accent was, I could interpret what he was trying to say, but they didn't do captions. So I thought a lot of Americans misunderstood the line. He said, we are evading victory. And I'm like, OK, it sounds like you said we are evading, escaping victory, like, oh, no, we are not going to win. And what he was saying, we are awaiting victory. So he would have said, we are awaiting victory. And the mix between W and V is almost blended, and it confuses them, just like it confuses Germans and Austrians. I will go to Washington. That same thing bleeds all the way over into Western Ukraine. And that's a sound that it's close to W, it's close to V, 
but we don't really have it in English, and so it gets muddled. And that's one of those that would indicate that's a person from the Western, more European end of Ukraine, instead of, let's say, Russian who will say, we are awaiting victory. Uh-huh. And they'll be more distinct, like Vladimir, and, you know, some of the sounds that are in Russian very distinctly with a more traditional V the way we say it. There was a situation where there were journalists in the war zone and some guys ran in with guns and said, are you journalists? And they knew that if this was the wrong side and they said, yes, we're journalists, they could be shot. If they were on their side, they would be allies. And they had to determine based on that accent which side they were on. Oh, my goodness. In a split second. You know, so some people for for some people, this is life and death. So obviously, when I'm training the actors to be able to do something like that, you want to be authentic. Um, and you can't just whip out the last Slavic accent, you know, it's it's not applicable. So we get very specific in this business. <laughs> I listened back to our last chat and you said that on your accent wish list at that time were Vietnamese and Korean. And you also wanted to shore up your Scandinavian accents. I'm wondering how has that gone over the past three years? Interesting. I have had many Asian American actors and voiceover artists come to me because they are fluent native speakers of English. Sometimes they also speak these other languages with their relatives or grandparents, Korean, Japanese, Chinese. But then they are often asked to do, let's say, a voiceover for something like, you know, an ancient Asian drama where everyone's in kimonos and there's samurai. And they are expected to do what would be considered one of these traditional accents as though it's spoken through English. And they're like, I don't really know how to go about that. I'm a fluent native speaker. How do I speak English as though I'm not? So we have several people along each of those accent lines that study with me to say, what are the differences between the English phonologies that we have and the sounds that are native to those languages and what gets lost in the filter and then train them on that so that they can perform these sort of historical fantasy epics with the flavor of the accent that they themselves don't actually have, but they are of the correct background and ethnicity to appropriately carry those roles. So uh, that's come about. And then with the Scandinavian, what's interesting is we've had so many gaming and sort of animation fantasies that involve Vikings, the nearest <laughs> the nearest accent is Scandinavian. So we have to basically take the roots of what we know now in modern day in the Scandinavian crossover to English and apply that to these fantasy Viking characters speaking English, but to give that ancient flair to it of what would it sound like maybe if this was a person in that century in that language family. So that's how that has ended up coming into play. So fascinating. So talking of fictional ancient languages, in this case, I saw a a little video that you'd done on TikTok. And congratulations on becoming a bit of a TikTok star over the past three years. (laughs) I fell into your TikTok rabbit hole. I mean, I was listening to the cat in the hat read in Yiddish and the lexical gaps in Jabberwocky and the whiny American (laughs) A, ham. Yes, you did it so good. (laughs) And then interestingly, how a linguist watches House of the Dragon. So that is very interesting to me how as a linguist when you are watching television shows that either have a fictional language or or maybe they're just actors speaking in a dialect how much you're able just to enjoy it versus how much you're just sitting there taking notes (laughs) yeah no I loved that series because David J. Peterson is the linguist who works on House of the Dragon he created Dothraki for Game of Thrones itself he's 
really, really well known. Oh, he did the languages, the fictional languages in Dune. He is a master's level graduate out of the Berkeley linguistics program, and we know each other. And he really focuses on created languages. So I've tried to ask him several times how many languages he may know, because it's interesting to me of the sound sets he chooses. Sometimes you can sort of hear bleed through from maybe Arabic or bleed through from indigenous languages. And I'm so fascinated at how he creates what he creates. But of course, since I know that this is a proper linguist creating these sentences, when I hear it through the show, of course, I'm processing it as, okay, verb, subject, object, what? And so the one that really got me obsessed was when they would shout to the dragon, Dracaris. And I'm like, okay, vaguely Latin. Is this a verb (laughs) command? Is this, you know, so it's just like, of course, I'm trying to process in my mind. I can't help it. But to say, now, how is that word being used? Is that like, uh, yo Dracaro, tu Dracaris, L, S, you know, I'm mapping it over European languages. And then that come to find out in truth, it's, it's a noun, it's screaming at the dragon, fire. (laughs) And so I was like, Oh, so interesting. Okay, so what I assumed was a sentence command was a single word that meant basically fire breathing, you know. So Matt Smith, uh, the wonderful English actor, really, really embraced this language. And he loves to really dive into it and memorize the sentences, which I find fascinating when it's not only a language you can't possibly know natively, but it doesn't exist in the world anywhere else. So you're only getting that language through the creator itself. And then you have to act with it. Now, I have a lot of experience with that when you have to act in and perform in a language you don't actually speak or understand. So you have to find these sort of hooks in what you're speaking to remind yourself of what these meanings are while you're physically performing sounds that are gibberish to you. Sounds like Shakespeare. (laughs) Well, it can be. It can be where you have to truly act something on one level while your mouth is doing something that feels completely foreign. Right. Did he also work on the Klingon language from Star Trek? Klingon sort of predated him because that began, I remember when that started because I was in linguistics school in 95 and I was literally at the Linguistic Society of America Summer Institute that they hold every couple of years. And this was in the very early days of email even. And all of us linguists were checking our email at the big giant computer terminals. And, and we were very excited because we all got the email that said, we would like linguists to work with us to create a language called Klingon for the Star Trek universe. We're interested in people who speak German, Hebrew, guttural languages. And so they were going to begin working together. So that predated him. But I remember when that first call originally went out 95. And by now that system of doing so has gotten so popular that uber nerds like me and David and others who can do this. And there's such a fandom for it. You know, they they have dictionaries that get published and the comic cons where people have studied and they speak in these languages to each other. So it's really fascinating to me that a culture who generally freezes up when we open a Spanish book (laughs) are absolutely willing to dress up as an alien and speak these sounds. And I'm like, see, now if we taught all foreign languages like this, it would be so fun. (laughs) So is writing your own language, devising your own language on your bucket list, linguistic bucket list? Interestingly, we had to do that as part of my training in linguistics at University of Missouri. So that's part of Um, How you get trained as to, you know, not leaning on existing languages, but to really understand how language functions and what is needed to communicate. So 
I'm too busy currently trying to learn existing languages to bother with creating one by myself. But that's something that linguists who study at the master's level are required to do. We have to learn the international phonetic alphabet. We have to transcribe spoken speech into these symbols correctly. And usually there's there's an area where you create a language and are assessed by your professor and your colleagues and try to understand how languages all over the world are put together. Um, so it's an exercise that they teach us to do. So I can, um, but I'm too busy with learning Yiddish, Ukrainian, Italian. <laughs> so because I know that I'm trying to get myself up to speed so that I'm ready when the actors have to come to me and say, oh, no, they want me to play the bad guy coming into the room speaking in X language. And then I turn to the cops and I change into English. I don't speak this language. Help me. So I'm trying to get myself ready so I can be their sort of assistant in getting that into place. When I was studying linguistics, maybe just fractionally before you were, it doesn't sound nearly as interesting as the linguistics that you studied. And also, it never occurred to me that teaching actors how to perfect an accent was a career option. And I realized that in our previous chats, one thing I've never asked you is, how did you discover you had this superpower? Like, when did it all start for you? Oh, wow. So, uh, you know, and it's interesting because the more that I've seen on TikTok during the pandemic, it's been such an educational channel <laughs> because everyone at the ground level shares their experience and shares their, you know, they're not really vetted through a standard media. So there's all kinds of individual reporters all over the world telling about their lives. Well, we, so many of us found out during the pandemic that we have ADHD, which I, I now I have an answer. Dory from, from Pixar is my spirit animal. And I've always wondered why it's not just a matter of focusing. You know, I, I, I'm, my brain works uh, where information flies around all the time. And I found out, oh, that's why. Well, the other element that people have sort of found out about is that if your brain is sort of wired neurodivergently, let's say, sometimes you can mimic extremely well and that our brains love to do so even more so than the general population. Well, at the age of 12, I could mimic all of the accents I would hear on television and on movies so well that when the school play came around like eighth grade and they're like, we're doing the Christmas Carol. And I said, well, I'd like to do Mrs. Cratchit. <laughs> and I could, I, could just, I could just mimic it. I didn't really know how I was doing it, but I could just make my mouth do the sounds. And it just was something that didn't have to be taught to me. It was just a mimicry. And then that kept going into high school and I could mimic any accent. So, you know, it comes time to do the miracle worker and I'm going to be... Annie Sullivan and do now your accent and you know I'm 14 years old 16 years old all of these accents anytime it came about I could walk in a room and win the role because I could do the accents I'm not the best singer I'm not always the best dancer but if it came to an accent no one could touch me <laughs> so eventually I became the point person for other actors who would say hey 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 we're doing Sense and Sensibility or we're doing this. Tell me the Northern accent. How do I do that? And they would come to me and then I would say, right, so we're going to drink a cup, not a cup and not a <laughs> cup, but we're going to drink a cup, love. You know, and I would show them the mouth and I just knew these things naturally. And I was so obsessed with it that eventually I thought, you know, I just can't stop thinking of these things all the time. So I eventually went into the master's program for linguistics itself. And it was just like, oh, brother, this is what I've been doing my whole life. And so it just put the answers to things I had mimicked. And now it had a real foundation to it. And so when I work with actors now, I can explain, okay, so the sound when we say, I would love a cup, 
Okay, here's the face shape to make those sounds. And here's why those sounds do this. And here's who speaks this way. And I say accents depend on, yeah, geography, but also time period. So it's where, when, and who are you? What's your social class? What's, you know, all these recipes come together so that it's not just, you know, there's the Monty Python voice and everybody's got the same voice. There's myriad recipes that you can make. And so I say all the time to the actors, I went to graduate school, so you don't have to. (laughs) You have two days to get this accent in place for the audition that you have to send in. Nowadays, it's just a self-tape. You have to tape yourself doing the audition and send it to the producers. In-person auditions are really declined now. So, you know, you can send in your best take, but it really has to be the best. And so I say, I realize there's no way for you to take a semester to study something anymore. I have to distill it down based on my lifetime of knowledge into nuggets that you can mimic and understand and be your best actor self. So I didn't have this as an actual career option. I had heard of there was a few very famous dialect coaches in the industry, like Tim Monick was the man who taught at Juilliard. And he was he's now really aging. And so he's probably going to phase out of the of the industry pretty soon. But he's the person who taught everyone from Matt Damon and uh, Meryl Streep and Ray Fiennes, all of the highest people in like Oscar level films. And he was the most in demand. But he had in his studio in New York this library, like Henry Higgins, but on tape, he would have all these recordings of all these voices in the world that he could look and say, okay, Northern Michigan, let me get that tape. Uh, Okay, Western Mississippi, let me get that tape. Now with digital recordings and things like the dialects archive online that lots of linguists, including myself contribute to, we have almost exponential captures of natural voices. And that's when TikTok took off. I loved it because I could just make collections of here's a person from Nigeria telling their story. Here's a person from Brooklyn telling their story. And you can save all of these natural examples. So in the early days, there were just a handful of these real experts. And then, you know, I'd say probably in the recession is when studios ran out of enough budget to sort of hire an actor and say, hey, Brad Pitt, we're going to have you play a guy from Lancashire and we we think you're the best actor. You're the money name for the film, but we'll get a dialect coach and teach you to do it on set. Well, they ran ran out of money to do those things. And so they started to say, look, actors, you're going to have to audition for the role with the accent we need right off the bat, which pushed it back to private coaches like me. And then people started to scramble to go, oh, buddy, I'm a starving actor. I got to get a coach who can teach me to do this. So actors started to reach out to me in that way. And I got in on the low level of their career when they were kind of starving actors. And now some of the guys that I worked with in the early days are superstars. And I'm their go to person because I've worked with them for a decade when they were broke. And now they're in every other Star Wars project, their Amazon Prime, all these mini series and things. So it's sort of because an economic change happened that actors weren't provided this by the studios anymore. And they had to go find somebody to do it. And on the other end, the linguists like myself were beginning to learn that there was a need for this. And so we kind of met them halfway. Now, some actors become dialect coaches because they were just natural mimics like I was. But what helps is that because I've got the extra component of the formal linguistics with it, I can do a little bit better of the explanation of what I'm teaching them so it isn't just rote memorization. Paula said, make the sound this way. It's why, why, why do we say cup and love? Why? You know, and so then they really get embedded into it and it's, it makes the performance 
really great to watch because it looks natural. So one of the things that I, I am fascinated about your work is the way that you are able to layer accents. So you don't just teach an English actor, say, to speak American English, which you can do in your sleep, but you work with actors who not only need to speak a language that is not native to them, but also speak that language with an underlying accent that might be from a completely different country than their native accent. And you've just finished working on a project like that, which you say is the most complicated project you have ever done. So I want to know everything about La Cabeza de Joachim Murrieta. Oh, yes. When this hits Mexico, it is going to rock the country because if the production is phenomenal and it's got some of the biggest names in Mexican acting. And I remember when the auditions were filtering out for this because there was this request going out where there was supposed to be, this is like in the 1840s, in the you know frontier days of Mexico and the Wild West and really interesting period of Mexico. And this is a legendary character in, in Mexican folklore. This is like Jesse James type of a person where there's novels written about this character. And so this is a miniseries set about several weeks of this person's life. Joaquin Murrieta, you know, very bad gunslinger type. One of the characters in the story is supposed to be an Irish priest. Now, this is a series set completely in Spanish. The entire thing is performed in Spanish for the Spanish-speaking audience and the entire Latin American world. So the request was going out that there would need to be an actor who could speak Spanish, but still with his Irish accent bleeding through. Now, we can sort of imagine what this would be like. Most Americans can relate to the idea of saying like, Yo quiero Taco Bell, me llamo. And, you know, we can understand the idea of you're speaking the language with your own accent embedded in it. So we can process that. But people have never really quite imagined, hey, wait, in every country, there's obviously people in Mexico who are from Ireland. There are people in Germany who are from Alabama. So we forget that that exists, too. It's not just that accents exist coming into English. It's that every country has speakers of the language, their filter coming in from their native language. So normally in Spanish, you would have sort of a tapped R, like Maria, America, ra, 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 that sound. Well, an Irishman has a very thick R. So if you were to say Maria lives in America in English, and then you're going to have to say that in Spanish, Maria, viva in America. <laughs> so you're speaking Spanish as though you're using the sounds of Irish. Now, I can process that. The average actor, their brain would be blown by that because that is just never entered the performing industry yet much. We're very used to a Scot speaking English or something like that within our same language family, but never really having to cross over. So they cast an actor, and he was overwhelmed with the challenge. He thought, oh, my God. And he's American, right? He's absolutely American. He is from the American South. And they had faith that he could find somebody to help him speak his lines with this accent. And that was a big – they don't realize, I think, what a big ask it was. But I think the creative imagination across the industry now – is that the sky is the limit. We can make up dragon languages. We can do anything. And that all actors are magic and that they can do this. And God love him. I mean, we worked extensively because he did not speak Spanish at all. So I had to do a technique I call fake translation, where we have the sentence and we'll say something like in Spanish, 
¿Qué quieres? What do you want? And then I would have to teach him an idea in his head because he doesn't know these words at all. He has no background in Spanish at all. And I would say something like, let's pretend it means ¿Qué quieres? Like Care Bear. You know, I would bring in some other idea to park on his brain so he had some idea what it meant. And then I would phonetically write it and phonetically record it for him with an Irish accent. So, que quieres, que quieres, amigo, que quieres, amigo. And so then he would memorize it visually. He would memorize it by the sound track that I would send him. And then by rote memorization, he got it. He would be able to go on camera and perform this and understand what was happening around him, even though he was basically speaking in gibberish. But he could act as though we all understood what was happening. And he had to do, you know, multiple episodes of this epic miniseries on a horseback out in the deserts of Mexico, <laughs> literally. How long have you got to teach him this? Like weeks or months or a couple of years? Well, let's see. We started last summer and they gave us the scripts to the episodes he'd be in. So I knew the lines and I knew the original Spanish. They were just given to us in Spanish, by the way. I translated them to teach him what they meant. So that we didn't have an English translation. They said, here's the script. Good Lord. Here is the Spanish script. <laughs> Here is the guns flying. Here's the horses. Here's the banditos. So me, as the American translator, I'm translating the lines into meaning so that he understands what these lines mean. Then putting them into a phonetic sort of, not the IPA real one, because he doesn't know that either. And he's got minimal amount of time. So I would fake spell them. And so like, if I want to make an actor say, quieres, I'm going to have to use American letters like, K-Y-E-T-T-E-S, quieres, like use an American accent. Or in his case, all right, we got to put your Irish on it, quieres, K-Y-E-R-E-S-S, quieres, quieres, que quieres, amigo, what do you want, friend? So I would fake, I would actually translate it, then fake translate it, record it in the accent so he could just wrote, repeat it over and over and over in his iPhone until he could go in front of a camera, put on his costume, hold his gun by his side on his horse and say, que quieres, amigo, you know, and, <laughs> and he, he pulled it off this miracle. He pulled it off. And the poor guy said, listen, Hey, I remember when I was on field work as a young person in anthropology and I was in Mexico and I was one of only two Americans for miles, miles. And, you know, you get sort of loopy when you're in a foreign country. I'm sure you remember this mm. When you're by yourself, really, or really isolated, and your language just isn't around you, and you start to get kind of loopy. And I told him, you're going to go through something. This is going to be like a peyote trip, man. This is going to be like you are removed from your environment in this very strange place. And you're going to feel, you might feel depressed, you might feel a lot of things, and you're already struggling with the acting involved and the stress of being in front of an entire crew and the cameras. So I said, this is no small feat that you've accomplished. And I said, believe you me, when something takes off in Mexico, there are T-shirts made of these characters. There are little figurines. There are kids going to dress up as you. You're going to be a character. And he just could not process this. And I said, wait till this hits. <laughs> and they will come running up to you speaking fluent in Spanish because they really believe you mm. speak this language because of the way you performed it and how we did this. Is this a job that makes you rich, Paula? I mean, <laughs> you know, I have to say that because I live in Colombia, which is mercifully this sort of valley of semi-affordable housing in America. So because of 
me being able to work, God bless the internet, God bless Zoom. It blows my mind, having been born during the Vietnam War, that I work via the Jetsons technology now. (laughs) And to say, like, you know, it's 2023, which, of course, I think we should have flying cars and, you know. So the fact that I can work on the coasts or internationally, when when that particular Amazon Mexico project went into post-production and then they had to do what they call ADR, additional dialogue replacement, kind of you've seen this on TV where the actor goes back in the studio and they're looking at the movie on the big screen and they're re-saying their lines with better microphones. Well, there were some of his lines that got garbled or the sound wasn't great or he didn't quite say it exactly right. So they got me over Zoom to Mexico City while he was Zooming from Brooklyn and all three of us in different parts of the world we're in this session that you would see on television where the editor, the directors are all connecting, saying, okay, say that line again. They would say it to me in Spanish, like, Paula, por favor, uh, you know, ask him to do it again. And then I would say it again. And then he might get the emphasis wrong. And then I would say, okay, think of it like in English when we say, every time I do this, now imitate that intonation, cada vez yo voy a, then he would mimic it, get it correct, and they would keep the take. So it was like, if we can just get it perfect one time, we got it. And so being able to do all of this technology, I can work in Mexico, I can work in New York, I can work in LA, and pay Columbia rent. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's my life is very good in the way, you know, I'm not wealthy, but I can live a very good quality of life versus people who are in the big cities. And they're just bleeding money for rent and transportation and food costs. So I'm very lucky that this is where I live and how I work. Well, Paula, I could obviously talk to you for days about your work. It is endlessly fascinating to me. And I am absolutely in awe of your ability. And I wish that I had met you 30 years ago when I was wondering, what the (laughs) hell am I going to do with a degree in (laughs) Swedish and linguistics? You really, you have my dream job. You can connect with Paula via her website at accentpaula.com. Paula.com. And you can also disappear down the linguistic rabbit hole of her TikTok site by searching for Fleur, the linguist. Fleur, like the French flower, F-L-E-U-R. Paula, thank you so much. And maybe you'd like to sign off in your favourite dialect, which I happen to know is Sheffield. Oh, Sheffield. Oh, well, let's see if I can try to do it in Sheffield. Um, I wish you all the best in the new year. <laughs> it's a bit Scottish, but it's- I know. <laughs> That's where I waver. (laughs) Thank you so much, Paula. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. I spend a lot of time on this show talking to actors and directors, theatre people who are very much audience-facing. But equally fascinating to me is the work that goes on behind the scenes and also on the literal scenes, the set designs that put the actors into a time and space. There are so many components to set design that it feels like a dizzying undertaking. You've got model design and drafting, architecture and structure, interior design and painting, the mechanics of movement, construction and installation techniques, script analysis and creative problem solving. Stage design has to be coherent with the script, logical and practical for the actors to move around in, as well as creative. It needs to be a spatial container that vibrates with or maybe challenges the script that functions in tandem with lighting design, acoustic limitations, costume and of course it needs to not fall over. 
I have many times gasped when a curtain goes up and a set is revealed. And one of the stages where I am often awed is at the Lyceum Theatre in Ararok and by the work of its resident scenic designer, Ryan Zerngable. Ryan started off with a BA in theatre arts, but then found his way to the University of Missouri, Kansas City, where he got his MFA in scenic design and then immediately got hired by Stevens College to be their scenic designer in residence. Today, he not only works with the Lyceum Theatre, but with theatres in Kansas City, St. Louis, New York City, and was the scenic artist for the 2011 home invasion horror film, Your Next, which was filmed right here in Colombia. He has worked with his scenic design idol, the illustrious Kazakhstan-born opera and theatre scenic designer, George Sipin, and the Lyceum's artistic director, Quinn Gresham, says of Ryan that he is one of the most interesting people I know. And so it is a huge thrill to get him all to ourselves for the next little while. Welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Ryan. Hello. Thank you, Diane. I love the description of your work on your LinkedIn page that says your design experience includes large musicals, farce, memory plays, classics, ballet and blood and gore pieces. Do (laughs) blood and gore pieces require extra considerations? (laughs) (laughs) They absolutely do. Um, And when when you're talking about blood and gore on the stage, uh, any number of variables that you have to try planning around. If it gets on the costume, you have to have something that can wash out. If it gets on the floor, you have to make sure that it's not going to be slippery, that the actors might not hurt themselves. I actually worked on a very bloody show in Kansas City a number of years ago called The Lieutenant of Inishmore, where throughout the course of the show, we had multiple gallons of blood (laughs) and trying to contain all of that and be able to keep everyone safe at the same time was a very difficult process, but we got there eventually. I was reading on your website, there was a review about that show from the pitch newspaper in Kansas City. And I think (laughs) the reviewer said, he lauded you for building an S-hole Irish shack complete with something you never see at the theatre, a moppable tiling. His killing floor is one step away from having sluices and a drain. Yeah, Yeah. and uh, we we made it even more complicated for ourselves because the floor for that was actually raked. So it was at an angle. So as the blood (laughs) hit the floor, it it kept on dripping towards the front. Um, so yeah, it was it was an adventure for sure. Have you ever been asked to tone down your design so it doesn't upstage the actors? Oh, absolutely, <laughs> uh, and that's something that designers really need to find a balance with. And you know, I I went to a portfolio review. My portfolio was shown in New York, and I had the great Deborah Landis Noodleman come and talk to me and. She was asking me about some of my color choices and very quickly pointed out the fact that my colors on some of my designs may upstage her costumes. (laughs) And it is up to me to make sure that her costumes and the characters that wear them are front and center. (laughs) 
So that's always a challenge. And as a result, a lot of scenic designers are stereotyped as being very brown set designers because it's it's easy to make a very neutral background and let the costumes pop in front of that. But, you know, we always like to find some splashes of fun color whenever we can. I feel like as a scenic designer, you need to have so many more tools at your disposal than many other theatre professionals because you need all these super practical skills like orthographic design. So you're taking your 2D drawings to 3D spaces, modelling. You need to know math and mechanics. But then on top of all of the practical stuff, you are still totally in charge of all the creative interpretation. What for you comes easy and what really makes your brain ache? <laughs> well, this this kind of takes me back to where I started when I got into this profession to begin with. I I was always kind of a lost artist, you could say. I loved just doing absolutely everything, but I didn't necessarily always have the focus to be able to stick with one and become, you know, as they say, a master of that one trade. But then when I came into the theater world and found out that there was a job that encouraged you to know how to draw and paint and sculpt and think about mechanics and all of these wonderful things. I just, it was this incredible moment where it felt like the clouds just parted and there was a choir of angels singing. <laughs> I mean, it it really was that simple. I came from a town that had some theater, but I didn't really know all of the roles that were involved in theater. And I honestly, until that moment, never realized that scenic design was a job. There was only one person at our school who who did everything on the tech side. And so I thought that was going to be a technical director, which involves, in my mind at that point, taking the set from the back of a script and creating it, uh, creating all the lighting, all of that kind of stuff. I've since realized that these are all different jobs, but I found a fascination with just being able to try everything. And in fact, that's that's one of the things that I still love doing to this day is finding new ways to not only make the process new to me and exciting to me, but also be able to do things that our audiences haven't necessarily seen before. And that's one of the things that uh, Quinn Gresham out at the Lyceum, I think, appreciates about me. He's he's made the comment a few times that it feels like walking into a mad scientist's laboratory <laughs> when he comes out into the shop sometimes, because I'll be playing with different chemicals or trying to figure out new ways to make materials bend or or flex in ways that they're not necessarily meant to. And that's some of the excitement to me. Not only does it keep it interesting for me, but I think it also helps keep it interesting for the audience so they don't see the same things 
for every single show. So I'm fascinated about the process of set design because, as you just said, there is no manual that comes (laughs) with a play. There's no instructions. You might get a list of props. And there's obviously some level of description of the space the actors are in, in sometimes, but not always. But that's it. There's there's no blueprint for you. So as a set designer, every time you look at, say, the season of plays that are coming up at the Lyceum Theatre, it's just a blank slate. So walk me through the design process. Who starts it and how does the whole thing roll out? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I usually am uh, banging on the door, on uh, Quinn's door, asking for scripts as soon as he chooses a season because I want to start reading them and thinking about them because uh, you never really know where ideas will come from. So having something in the back of your mind, I find incredibly helpful. But we always do tend to start with a process that's pretty typical. You start by just reading the script. And while you're reading it, you think about how the story is impacting you, what stands out about the story that you want to be able to reinforce or convey. You think about who the story is being told from the perspective of. And uh, sometimes you also have to think about who the story is about, which sometimes is different than whose perspective it's being told from. Mm. But uh, once you've gotten that first read in, you go back and put together what I call a scene breakdown. And it's just an analysis of the actual text of the script. You know, if someone says... Oh, look what's coming through that window over there. You you write down there needs to be a window. And <laughs> let's get out of here. You through that door, me through this door. You have to think about, well, yeah, there are two doors. But to make it interesting on the stage, you probably don't want those doors right next to each other. It's a more interesting stage picture if they have to run opposite directions. So um, you put together your entire list of all of the practical concerns of that show first. And then from there, the process can go so many different ways. If if the show is um, inspired by an artist, you might spend a lot of time looking at the images of that artist. You might be looking at different cultures or... You might be looking at exquisite homes of a certain period or location, Um, just doing as much visual research as possible to be able to figure that out. And, you know, that's that's what I would consider to be kind of the start in an ideal world. Uh, That being said, there are a lot of shows where you have to forget about the art for the beginning of the process. You know, we're doing some musicals that have upwards 50, 60 different scenes. And at that point, you have to kind of start by just thinking about what are the pieces that you absolutely need in each scene. Look at how those pieces can 
move around and fit in a puzzle because you don't want the audience sitting in the dark for a minute while a scene change happens. Usually we're trying to do that in seven to ten seconds. Wow. So then it becomes a very mechanical process that you are thinking about how things move through the space. And then once you've figured that out, you find all of the little holes around <laughs> all of those little pathways and go, oh, okay, I can put some scenery there and there and there and there. Now let me go to the artistic part of this process. So, you know, every single show really has to have its own process as far as development goes. But once once you start getting specifics, then it really becomes a conversation. Um, a lot of times you'll start with the director, bounce ideas back and forth about what the inspiration is for a show, what are the important themes, what is important as far as um, different scenes, a, a really important scene, you know, the the beast in Beauty and the Beast, when he's transforming, where is that going to be? Because uh, knowing that is going to impact where every other piece of scenery in that show is going to have to go. So the director and I will bounce ideas back and forth quite a bit. Um, and then after that, you open the process up to as many people as possible. Lighting very likely will want to hide lights somewhere on the set to make things glow, to make things more interesting. Costumes may very well want to look at the colors and make sure that none of the colors I'm using are the same colors that they are using. So... Uh, actors turn invisible on stage, those sorts of things. This past summer, I saw Clue at the Lyceum Theatre, which, <laughs> like the board game, has nine different rooms plus secret passages that the characters need to move swiftly <laughs> between, and your set was absolutely amazing. Uh, well, likewise, you. I didn't see this, but I heard so many people talk about it in Murder on the Orient Express the previous summer, where you had train carriages that kind of moved across the set. Uh-huh. These are all just so amazing. Tell me about designing Clue, because you have a pretty small stage at the Lyceum Theatre, and you crammed so much space into that little <laughs> space. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it it was definitely a challenge and you know I I'm starting to find after having done this for many years that some of those most difficult shows uh end up being the most rewarding in the end. Um and Clue was definitely one of those. You know, it it really came down to what I was talking about before with starting with writing down each of the different rooms and the different requirements for each room. Some of the rooms you need to have people be able to pop out from behind paintings. Some rooms, uh, there just has to be magic trickery happening as far as someone makes a joke and a map falls down behind them or an arm has to come out of nowhere and hit someone. Um, so uh, once you have all of those, then you have to figure out how crammed together <laughs> you can make everything, especially with Clue. You know, with with a lot of musicals, we have the ability to create wagons for different scenes that we can get off stage and cram in a corner after we're done using them and then that's it but clue moves so fast and yeah. those same rooms pop 
in and out constantly. So we didn't have that ability. They all had to be there and they had to be ready and they needed to be able to work flawlessly. And that that took some doing. When you look back over your career, what have been some of your favorite set designs, uh, maybe the ones that are most challenging that end up being your favorite. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, I, I actually talk about this fairly often. Uh, the Our production of Christmas Carol at Air Rock Lyceum, no show has brought me more gratification and caused me to shed so many tears. <laughs> the show itself has so many technical challenges all wrapped up in a very small space. And, you know, a lot of things are hidden even in the floor. That entire show, the audience may or may not know, is built eight inches above our regular stage floor because we hide a lot of different effects for that production in the floor. It helps to hide some of the magic, and keeping the magic is really what's important to keeping that production magical for the audience. And especially many years, we have a preview from local school districts that come in, and they, they see the show while we're still working on ironing all, all of the details of it, and seeing the possible next generation of people who support the theater, who will work in the theater, see them be mystified by something that happens on stage. That takes me back to where I started and what got me interested in the first place. So so I think that show is front and center, one of my favorite and one of my most challenging. <laughs> As I said in my intro, you design sets, not just for the Lyceum Theatre, but for several other theatre companies in Kansas City and St. Louis. So there must have been times when different companies at different times have produced a show that you've worked on before. And I'm curious whether you take the easy route and adapt your previous <laughs> set for this new stage, or whether your design philosophy is always to create a unique set every time. It really depends on the director and the theater and uh, what they are thinking, for one. And two, if the space will even accommodate what the original set was. Um, you know, a, a number of years ago, I worked on a world premiere of a musical called Lucky Duck. And a year later, we ended up bringing that show to New York. And it went from a small theater in Kansas City that was in the basement of a building that was only, you know, 10, 12 feet tall. And then we went to an off-Broadway theater house that was 35 feet tall. So there had to be obvious reworking of it to be able to make it fit that space. There are shows that I wasn't terribly thrilled with my first go at, um, I will say Beauty and the Beast. It is actually a beast of a show to do. <laughs> um, and I hate to admit that uh, I didn't get it right the first time, but I did not get it right the first time. And uh, it, it left me with many regrets. And then luckily, a few years later, I was able to take a second swing at it. And I just started from scratch. And I had a better sense of what the show needed. And the show was a lot more successful as a result of that. So um, 
that being said, there are other times that I work with a director and they reach out to me a year later saying that they're working on that same show with another theater and they really loved what we did and they would like to redo it. In which case, we'll work on that and use the same set and we will, you know, modify it so it will work with the new space. But we'll try to keep as much of the original integrity of it intact as possible. What's on your set design bucket list? Oh, (laughs) this is absolutely one of those shows that will make me tear my hair out, but I think I will get so much satisfaction out of doing it. The Drowsy Chaperone is is top of the list for me. It's such a magical, magical story of a person telling you about his favorite old Golden Age musical And he takes out a record and puts on the record player. And as it's playing on the record player, he tries to illustrate for you in words what's happening. And then as the show goes on, his entire New York City apartment transforms into this giant Golden Age musical. (laughs) He might grab a glass of milk out of the refrigerator, close the door, and then start walking away. And then all of a sudden, the door of that refrigerator swings open as a showgirl with a 10-foot feather headdress comes walking through. Um, Something about it is just so incredibly magical. I feel like you've already got some blueprints down for it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you could read a little more about Ryan on his website at Ryan J. Zerngable, and that's spelled Z-I-R-N-G-I-B-L dot com. And you'll be able to see his designs at some of the seasons, the upcoming seasons, uh, summer season of shows at the Lyceum Theatre in Ararok. Ryan, thank you so much for giving us a quick tour of your theatre world and for making time to chat today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. And that is it for another week. All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingofthearts.transistor.fm. And of course, you can also connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. Thank you to my guest this evening, accent coach Paula Van Landingham and the Lyceum Theatre's resident scenic designer, Ryan Zerngable. Thanks, as always, to guitarist Yasmin Williams, whose song, Restless Heart, opens and closes the show. You can hear more of her music on Spotify and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. Finally, thank you so much for listening. This has been Speaking of the Arts and my name is Diana Moxon. I'll be back next week with more peeks behind the arts curtain. Until then, stay arty Missouri! Missouri!